Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 26 through 38 in another uh, prediction of a birth, uh, as we just saw last week, only this one is just a little bit different. For those of you that might just be joining us, we are going through a series called Apprenticing Jesus, which is really just going through the gospel of Luke, uh, verse and passage at a time, looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus, who he is, what it looks like for us to follow him uh, with our entire lives. And so we just started a, a couple weeks ago. The first sermon was called A Story That Is Actually True. The second sermon was called A Story That's Too Good to Believe uh, or That's Too Good to Be True. And this sermon will be called A Story That's So Good It's Hard to Reject. All right? So Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. Uh, I'm just going to read through the whole thing. Just allow the story to soak up your heart and soul. Uh, this is a great one. And then we will pray and then get into it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your word with fear and trembling. Not fear in the sense that we are scared of you, but fear in the sense that you have spoken powerfully to humanity thousands of years ago, and that same word is alive by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. God speaks. Now wonderful that you speak through stories, historical accounts of real people and real lives, real problems, real discouragement, real suffering, in order to show your redemptive purpose for the whole world. May we get so caught up in your redemptive purpose today that we might not ever be the same. Let us encounter the living God today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The other day I was hanging out with a family in our church, uh, went surfing, and we hit a few places on our way from uh, Ventura. Uh, stopped in Ventura, caught some waves, stopped in Carpinteria, got a latte, Lucky Llama, and then stopped in Santa Barbara and ate some fish tacos on the wharf. And at each of these stops, uh, it was a Saturday morning, right? It's pretty bustling. 
I'm uh, connecting with all of these people. We're sharing tables with them. There's families there. Uh, they got their fanny packs and their, their, their high shorts. And I'm like, okay, you're a tourist. This is great. You know, I'm like, all right. And every single person, I'm like, uh, oh, where are you from? And without fail, every single one of them was from Santa Barbara. I sat at a table eating tacos with this one guy, and he looked like he was out of town, man. He was not from here. And I'm like, hey, where are you from? Uh, you know, uh, Montecito. Like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. You're from here. <laughs> sat next to another guy behind me, or uh, at, when he left, a, a couple young kids, uh, students came and sat at the table and uh, asked them the same thing. Hey, where are you from? Oh, we're, uh, you know, down the street, City College. And all day long, I just was running into these tourists from Santa Barbara, and it just uh, reminded me of how much I love to do that. I love to be a tourist in my own city, Santa Barbara. Uh, it made me think, though, where would, uh, if, if you had a chance with Jesus, if you had like a coffee date with Jesus, or not a coffee date, if you had one hour with Jesus in Santa Barbara, where would you take him here? Any takers? Moxie. He'd be really good with the kids too, right? He'd just have all the kids around him in Moxie. Where would Jesus go if he lived in Santa Barbara? Where would God be found if he was in Santa Barbara? If you had one hour with Jesus, the Messiah, in Santa Barbara, where would you take him? I would take him to all the Mexican food on Milpa Street. I'd just start at the north side and I'd go all the way down to the ocean until he collapsed. But he wouldn't because son of God and stuff. <clears throat> Listen, here's the fun thing about this, this entry point in the Gospel of Luke. Luke already tells us where, where Jesus would be found. Luke already tells us the types of people that Jesus would hang out with. And he opens it with uh, this verse. And obviously Jesus is not born yet, but God, where Jesus could be found. Look at verse 26 through 27. In a sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, we already see in the world of that day where God chooses to go, and I think it's very interesting that God, when he chose to make his big appearance, didn't go to Rome, the center of political power. He didn't go to Athens, the center uh, of the intellect, and he didn't go to Jerusalem, the center of religious uh, a practice. He went to a town that nobody reading this probably would have known. He went to Nazareth, a podunk town on the outskirts of nowhere. I love how Luke is telling another birth story. If you were here last week, we looked at the birth story of Elizabeth and uh, her husband Zachariah and how she would give birth, even though she was barren, to a son named John who would pave the way for this birth, this guy. I love how Luke is contrasting these stories. He's all about telling a story. He's, he's compiling all of this evidence. He's not talking about everything that there is to say about Jesus. He's weaving parts and stories together in a specific way in order to get a message across to you about who this guy is. And so he gives us these two birth stories. And these couldn't be more contrasted Together, and they show us a little bit not not only about where God could be found, but what God enjoys doing. To put it in the words of one uh, scholar, 
who points out the contrasts in these birth stories. She says, one resides in a major city, Elizabeth, and the other in an insignificant rural area. Elizabeth is old, Mary is young. Elizabeth cannot bear children because she is too old. The young Mary is a virgin. Elizabeth is of high status. Mary's social standing is quite low. Elizabeth's pregnancy will actually enhance her status, as we saw. Mary's pregnancy promises to lower her status even further, at least initially. But there is a reversal. Mary is given a privilege far beyond that of her well-to-do cousin, the birthing of God's son. What we see in this opening verse is God enjoying, it seems like God enjoys reversing our ideas of who's important and who's not. God seems to enjoy reversing our ideas of what is true power and what is true status and what is not. I'm reminded of a passage by Paul who would later be discipled by Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful according to worldly standards. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's a reversal. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. It's a reversal. You say, well, I'm weak. I have nothing going for me. I'm at the bottom of the food chain. There's, there's nothing, nothing in my life that is attractive. You are the type of person that God loves doing stuff with. He loves spiting the powerful. He loves spiting those who have everything so much that they have need of nothing else, including God. God loves to make a spectacle of his ability to take dust and turn those things into beautiful things. If you're feeling down on yourself this morning, you're in the right place. You're listening to the right God. He loves people like you. God seems to enjoy reversing our ideas of what is, who is important, who is powerful, and who has uh, worthy status. This is a reversal, uh, not only in the people that we're talking, uh, not only in, in Mary herself, but the fact that Mary and Joseph are very poor people. Not only that they're poor people, but this is an insignificant town, probably 30, 40 miles on the outskirts of Jerusalem's power structures. It's far away from all the action. Nobody knows about it. Nobody cares about it. If they do know about it, it's a reversal. Not only that, but women usually in this day weren't the ones that important things were announced to. Has anyone picked up on the people that are kind of taking center stage in the Gospel of Luke? God loves reversing our ideas of who's important. In the first century, men were at the top of the food chain. Women were so denigrated that their word didn't even, it didn't even count in the court of law. So why would you need to tell, any, uh, tell them anything? And yet God bursts on the scene and speaks to women. In a culture where men were privileged, and women were not, God chooses these two women to become the center of God's attention. And 
even Gabriel actually silences Zechariah, as we saw last week, and Luke ends up silencing Joseph, because after Jesus is born, we never hear about that guy again. It's a reversal. God loves reversing our ideas of who and what is important. Look at verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now you have to You have to put yourself in this situation. Mary being a virgin who is betrothed, that's not like our idea of of marriage. She's not married married, but she's been signed over to another person. So she's as good as married. So to cheat, cheat on him is worthy of divorce. It's an affair. So they're not sleeping together, but they're married for all intents and purposes. And in that, in that, uh, in that season, a person in that, you know, a young woman who's about to be given over in marriage uh, would have had no exposure to any other people, especially men. No man would have seen her except for her younger siblings and maybe her dad. She would have been hiding out, exposed to nothing out there. She would have been just locked down, just in secret. And all of a sudden, this man appears in your living room. Uh, now, there's no reason to think that this, you know, Gabriel has like all the wings and stuff that we see in the paintings. Uh, when he appears in the book of Daniel, it says he was a man or he appears as a man. Uh, but still, this is probably pretty, pretty scary, right? If you're a young Mary in your home just doing things uh, as you were expecting and you've never seen a guy other than like your younger brothers or your dad and you're not even supposed to and all of a sudden you turn a corner outside of the kitchen and there's this guy standing in your living room saying, greetings, oh favored one. The Lord is with you. you know, you're like, yeah, right. You know, what's your problem? God reveals himself through Gabriel, the angel, here in Nazareth to her, a nobody in a nowhere place far outside of the radar of anyone else who is important by worldly standards. This is what God loves to do. It's a reversal. And sometimes reversals of power and privilege are not easy, especially when, even when, when we are not the ones that are powerful. And it takes Mary off guard. I can't blame her. Guy appears in her home and says, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And in fact, in verse 29, it says she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now notice the text doesn't say that she's necessarily stunned by him and his presence, although hard to see that she wasn't. It says that she was trying to, she was greatly troubled at what he said and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Giant angel, looks like a dude just appears in your living room in the middle of the night as you're just doing stuff. You're scared, you're shocked, you're a young woman by yourself. There he is. And he says, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. She's probably, I mean, what is she thinking? I'm not sure, but she's greatly troubled. What does that mean? Why are you here? Why you? Why now? Why me? Are you going to hurt me? What's going to happen? Do you ever doubt the goodness of God in a similar way? I'm not saying Mary was doubting here, but she was, she was certainly troubled. But do you ever doubt? Now, I don't mean in a general sense. Like you might, you might be able to get to the place where you're like, God is good all the time to everybody. 
except me. Maybe you believe that in general God is, God is gracious and good to people. But perhaps you feel invisible. Perhaps you feel that what you're going through right now is unseen by him and uncared for by him. Perhaps you doubt that God, while he is good in general to humanity, is not very good to you. Why would he need to be? Or maybe you doubt that God cares for you. You have nothing, perhaps, that would attract anyone else to care for you in this life. Why would the God of the universe care for you? Or that he would have a worthwhile place for you in his kingdom and the things that he's doing in his life and in his family. Perhaps you, too, are trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be in your case. But look at what the angel says to her in that moment. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. I'll tell you, there's something like a line like that that can melt away years and layers of insecurity that has been wrapped around a human heart. He pierces through the darkness into her nowhere land, into her insignificance, into her living room, and says to her, not everybody else, you have found favor with God. Lines like that that come from God have the tendency to peel off layers of hurt and insecurity. Maybe that's what you need today, is to hear God say to you in Christ, you are favored by the Father. Notice that he does nothing, like he connects, this is connected to nothing that Mary has ever done. She's done nothing to deserve this. She's barely lived her life. Her life is about to come. Her real life in her day and in her culture is about to start. And this guy is threatening to ruin the whole thing. She's done nothing to deserve the favor of God, and yet God loves her. You know, if, if, if the angel was saying this to someone like Zechariah, who we saw last week, the high, like one of the priests who is in the temple, who's been serving God his whole life, who came from the line of Aaron, a bunch of priestly uh, men, you know, not that he would say this, but if I were him, I'd be tempted if God said to me, you are the favored one. I'd be like, yeah, I could see how that would be true. I work for you. I do a lot of things for you. Got the incense going on. I am in the temple where your presence is. Zachariah wouldn't say that, but, but she has none of those things. She has nothing alluring or attractive about her or her life to gain anyone's attention other than a poor carpenter in the middle of Nazareth. And God busts in on the scene and says, you are favored by God. Some of you today, perhaps you feel unseen. What you, need to, what you need to know this morning is that God sees you even when nobody else does. And he loves you even when nobody else does. Where can you find God? You can find God moving among those whom the world has passed by. The question uh, that Luke begins to answer after this point is, what is God doing once you've found him? We can find God moving among those whom the world has passed by, but what is he doing? 
Look at verse 31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Gabriel says this to, Gabriel says this to uh, Mary. Now, I want to stop right there. He says a lot more after this. But just imagine as this line is coming out of Gabriel's mouth. You will conceive and bear a son. Seems like a special person. I think he might be a messenger of God. He's coming, hopefully, to bring me good news. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, at this point, there's nothing immediately visible about how this is going to be a great thing so far. This is a virgin betrothed to a man in the first century. Pregnancy just out of nowhere is not a great thing for me, bro. That's not in the cards. And oh, oh, you're telling me that God is going to do that. Oh, that's going to that's going to explain really well when I tell Joseph that, right? Oh, God did it. I don't, you know, <laughs> sure, Mary. Uh-huh. Totally. How many of us have, <laughs> this is Gabriel's first line. Okay, I'm here. You are favored by God, and I'm going to prove it. You're going to get pregnant, okay? And it's not going to be your husband's. It's just going to happen. How many of you have ever asked God for help and gotten something way worse? <laughs> How many of you have ever prayed? <laughs> I've ever prayed? I've ever prayed for a situation in your life? And the opposite of what you were expecting God to do happened. How many of you have hoped God would pull through and yet he left you in the turmoil that you were hoping that he would bring you out of? How many, how many of you have prayed prayers that did not get answered the way that you wanted? If we read this text and this story with uh, Mary, it seems that God will sometimes do that. God will sometimes have to do that in order to reverse our myopic expectations of what great actually is. I have an idea of what's great, God. Give me a baby so I can, you know, actually get me married to a man, Joseph. That's a good looker right there. I just want one kid, maybe two kids, uh, just a quiet life. We'll move to Nazareth and just everybody leave me alone. That is a great life. Give me that, Lord. When what God's version of greatness perhaps is, I'm going to give you a kid myself. You're going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to save the entire universe. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> God, I want, you to give, I want you to fix my problem. That would be great. When in reality, God's version of greatness might be to leave you in your problem so that he can fix you. You might pray, God, I want you to change all of my circumstances, please. When God's version of greatness is perhaps to use those circumstances to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ to make you stronger on the inside so that when you emerge out of places of suffering, you will be better off than you ever were before and able and postured to love other people who are suffering like you were. Sometimes we have these ideas of what is great and good and sometimes God answers them because he agrees. Those are the great ones, right? And sometimes God sees way better than you and I do. And he does things that we do not expect. He's a God of reversal. 
And he does that in three ways. He doesn't leave her with just a pregnancy notification. (laughs) He shares with her why this is going to be good. And he does it in three ways. One, your son is going to be God. No big deal. (laughs) That's why Joseph can have no part in this. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and you'll just conceive. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of God. That is divine language. This is not just, he's going to be human, but he's also going to be 100% God. I'm coming into the world. This is God's notification. I'm coming into the world. What is this God man going to do? Well, he gives us two things in what he tells Mary. Two, he's going to be a savior. He's going to be a God who comes and saves people from their sin and from their suffering and from their death. We get this in verse 31. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus comes from the Hebrew word for Joshua, which means the Lord is our salvation. In other words, God is saying to Mary, I'm going to save you all through your child. Third, he's not just going to save us from our problems. He's going to fix them by ruling and reigning as the rightful king of the universe. We get that in verse 33. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Oh, Got enough royalty language in there that you kind of get the idea, okay, he's going he's gonna to rule in some way. But maybe if you've never read the Bible before, you hear this language about uh, 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 David and Jacob, and you're like, what is this? Basically, God is a storyteller. That's what this is. Christianity didn't start uh, in the first century. Uh, the story of Christianity certainly didn't start in the 1970s or 80s or 90s. Uh, It started thousands of years ago with a man by the name of Abraham because God is a God of stories and he likes to communicate to us through actual people's lives. And Israel was a part of his story and Israel got its beginning with one man and his family, Abraham. And God said to Abraham, he said to him a few things. He gave him a blessing, I believe in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis uh, uh, 17, he gave him a blessing called the blessing of Abraham, which is, is basically three things. I'm going to make you into a people. I am going to put your people into my place, and I'm going to bless my people in my place with my rule and reign. That's the blessing of Abraham. God loves telling stories through people's lives. This is a story about how God, the whole Bible is a story about how God wants to lead and bless his people, and creating those people out of nothing. But all throughout the Old Testament, it seems that that story never actually reaches the end. It seems that it always seems to get thwarted by some silly person. It seems that it never gets realized, and to no fault of God, who is the storyteller, master, but because of the leaders that he keeps raising up over and over, the rulers that he puts into place, keep failing to do their job. And yet even throughout all of that failure, throughout the Old Testament, there's these little hints that somebody is going to come along, a ruler who will not mess up, who will rule with righteousness and justice, who will spread mercy and love and rule as a right king. Uh, There are so many of these. I just want to bring up one. Uh, This 
was a promise given to King David. David is one of those kings, arguably one of the best kings in Israel's history. God says, he was a man after my own heart, one of the best. And yet he still failed. He committed adultery, and then to cover up his adultery, he killed uh, that woman's husband in battle, took her for himself. The Bible describes him as a man with bloody hands. He just was in so much war that God didn't want him in his temple, so he had some flaws. And yet to him, God said in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 through 13, when your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, <clears throat> you might think, well, okay, he's gonna have a son and he does have a few sons. But they don't seem to capture the power of this promise that was given to David. He has a few kids, they commit treason, they're also violent, they try to kill uh, David uh, and run him out of the city. One of his best sons uh, was Solomon, whom the Bible says was one of the wisest people on the face of the planet. He rules really well for a time. And you're almost tempted to think as you're reading that story, 1 Kings, uh, all the way up till chapter 9 or 10, I believe it is, oh, this is the guy, this is the guy that's been promised. And yet right at chapter 11, it says that he started marrying all of these women, and through these women, about a thousand of them, and through these women, these wives that he had, which God looked down upon, his heart started to chase after all of these other gods. And so the kingdom that David was running was split into two and has not recovered. And you're left in the story. God loves just inserting this tension, it seems, into the story, wondering where is this guy that has been talked about? And this is the enigma. It's, it's not David's immediate sons. You fast forward to the, the days of Luke and you see that Herod is, uh, uh, is, is ruling and Rome is occupying. Where is this promised blessing that the story has been telling us about in Abraham? And then after hundreds of years of silence, Jesus comes in on the scene. And in Jesus, Israel's story is brought to completion. Jesus is the king who fulfills the blessing of Abraham. He's the God king who comes to save and rule with justice and righteousness. You may say, well, that's great for Israel. Why should I care? Because it's through Israel that this king ministers and rules over the whole world. Luke would go on to say in verse 33, and his kingdom will know no end. He's not just gonna rule for a career He's gonna rule for eternity. This is the last one, the one that all of humanity has been hoping for. So what is God doing? Well, the virgin birth shows us that God, in the midst of an oppressive and corrupt powers, brings the blessing of his rule and reign to bear on all people. We see glimpses of that in the birth of Jesus. Something is changing in the atmosphere. God's kingdom is coming upon people. text, uh, the writer Luke leaves us with a way to respond. 
This is for us. All of this was for us. But this is what we should probably pay incredible attention to. Because the way that Gabriel describes this boy, this God king who's about to be born, is not as your typical, my best friend Jesus, who comes with me on Sunday mornings uh, to church. It is a ruler. It is a king who's come to invade the darkness of the world to take happy captives for himself. I use that, that language, happy captives, because he's not, a, he's not a slave driver and he's not an oppressor. He's a good king. But he wants nothing less than the full allegiance of his followers. And why would we not give that to him? He's not here as a supplement to the rest of our lives. He's here to take over the entirety of our lives. He's here to save us from the tremendous burden of our sin, but also to change our lives from the inside out, to be just like him as apprentices. And so when we get into the response of what it looks like to follow this kind of person, we need to pause for a moment and think about it. Because this is nothing less than everything about you that he's calling you to. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, she answers in two parts. I love this. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How am I going to, you know, how is this going to happen? Now notice that Zachariah said that last week. And he got, (laughs) angel was like, uh, uh, specifically what Zachariah said was, how can I be sure that this is going to happen. Give me proof. And the angel was like, well, I'll give you proof. I'm going to shut you up until your kid is born. How's that? <laughs> uh, Mary is not asking the same type of question, right? Uh, this is wonder, not cynicism. She's asking for an explanation, not a sign. This is just genuine desire for clarification. How is this going to happen? And the angel answers to her and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This child to be born uh, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he talks about her, uh, her, her relative, Elizabeth, how that was a breakthrough. And then he ends with this statement that you should take to the bank. For nothing will be impossible with God. I love this. Because he's meeting this, this young woman, very vulnerable place in a vulnerable time to live, with not much going for her at the threat of everything falling apart. And as she asks, very genuinely, how is this going to happen? Do you see what the angel is doing? He is now lifting her eyes off of her situation onto the power and faithfulness of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And it must click for Mary because Mary's response is one of the most beautiful responses of prayer and faith in the entire Bible. I don't know any response in the Bible that comes close to this. Just maybe one or two. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That word servant expresses complete obedience. Let it be to me according to your word. You see that? An appropriate response, and to kind of rehash where we've been, where can you find God? Well, you find him among people whom the world has passed by. What is he doing? 
he is bringing his presence and his blessing to bear on lives like that and their surroundings. How do you access it? Look at Mary. You surrender to the king. Accessing God's blessed rule starts with surrendering to the king and to his kingdom. This is at the heart of apprenticing Jesus. There's so much other stuff to talk about, but it is at least this. It is at least glad and happy surrender to the king. It means he is taking over. It is far beyond an Americanized version of Christianity that perhaps some of us are used to thinking where we've compartmentalized that version of our spirituality on the side and we do all of these other things. We come to church and we do the thing, but Monday through Saturday we do our thing. Or we have a quiet time, uh, you know, on Tuesday morning, but after uh, seven or eight in the morning, all the way down, it's work and it's something that is completely disconnected from Jesus. No, everything about your life is about to be taken over by the best person you have ever encountered in your life. And he wants everything. He will give you everything that you have ever needed and hoped for, but he also wants everything from you. And it'll, it'll be the best decision that you've ever made in your life. But make no mistake about it, he wants it all. He wants your ambitions. He wants your career choice. He wants your relationships. He wants your money. He wants your dreams. He wants your comfort zone. He wants your friends. He wants your frenemies. He wants your thought life. He wants your inner life. He wants your character. He wants your habits. He wants your addictions. He wants your pain. He wants your schedule and everything in between. He wants everything. Jesus wants everything about you. And for the person who thought and was experiencing their life as one that was unseen, well, I've got good news for you. Not only are you, uns- not only are you seen by the only person worth mattering, but he wants everything that he sees. And he invites you, come follow me. Accessing the king's blessing in your life means giving access in your life over to the king. You can start right there. And Mary doesn't rush into this, and I don't think we should either, especially if you're in that spot where you're like, I I don't know what I believe about this, I'm just kind of checking it out. Mary doesn't rush into this as well. She asks questions. And let's not forget that Mary is facing a really deep cost if she goes through with this. It's It's not like she doesn't have anything to lose She is betrothed to a man who is her security. In the first century, if you were a woman in the first century, your security in life was your man. And your status was built on your children. And she's about to become pregnant, and nobody is going to believe that God did it. Even though this wasn't a very common thing in the first century as it was uh, thousands of years prior, there's still this overhanging possibility that she might be killed for this. She might be accused of adultery. Uh, Joseph, her husband, is already considering divorce. We see that in Matthew chapter 119. And divorce in the first century is not like divorce today. It ruined people back then because your entire life as the woman was tied in all of your security and strength and comfort and well-being economically uh, and relationally to being married to someone else. So to be divorced meant that you would be ostracized 
and probably end up impoverished because you couldn't get a job to sustain yourself. And since you were already married once, nobody else is going to want you. This is the type of thing Mary is facing. And so I wonder what was going through her mind as she's asking, how can this be? And maybe that's the same question you're asking right now. As you wonder, what does it look like to follow this Jesus? How can this be with what I'm dealing with and going through and want to go to right now? And look at Mary, who has nothing at this point, still accepting God's will for her life. Surrender. Before Jesus was ever born, she believes in him. And she takes God's favor at the price of her own disgrace. There's always a cost in following Jesus. And the question we should be asking is we should just be honest with that cost, not rush into it nonchalantly, pretending like it's going to be easy all the time. We should ask what Mary asked, how can this be? Or paraphrased another way, what might that cost be for me right now? What does it look like to follow Jesus right now and where are the costs associated? Or later in life, And is he worth it to me to go through those costs? Another question you might be asking is, uh, what is holding me back from being fully devoted to Jesus Christ right now? Those are your costs. But for the person that moves to Mary's second line, who doesn't stay in neutral forever, you will be faced with a God King who comes down to our levels, wherever that level may be, and invites you to come with him for the ride. Who invites you to ask questions, to struggle with doubt, to struggle and to wrestle with your faith, but to do it with him as he simultaneously invites you to follow him forever. He does this to Mary And Mary never looks back. What are you going to do about it? For those of you that want to move forward, can't think of a better prayer for us to pray to crystallize that movement than let it be done to your servant according to your word. Ask Robert to come out here as we sing together. Um, And as as we sing songs of surrender and songs of worship to Jesus. Let's just slow down as we are so often in the habit of doing as a church on Sunday mornings and just consider those questions for ourselves. Lord, what are you doing in my life? What do you want me to do? What are you pushing me towards? And what am I afraid of? And don't run away from those fears. Don't suppress them. But neither run away from God. Take those fears to Jesus today and ask him in all faith and humility and longing, how can this be? Let him minister to you today. But I also want to wrap that up with one more thing. Don't stay in neutral forever. Don't wrestle with these questions for the rest of your life. You don't have forever. At a certain point, you must make a decision about what you're going to do about Jesus. 
And I pray with all of my heart that your decision will be, let it be done to your servant according to your word. Heavenly Father, speak to us now. Heal our broken hearts. Change us from the inside out. Wash away our sin. Draw us to you out of our dark places, out of our hidden corners, out of our shame and despair. May you pull us out of those places that we have been hiding or covering up and reveal to us the tremendous love of our Lord who laid his life down for people that were unworthy. For God who is found among the least of these to call them out of their sense of worthlessness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I pray that we today would be feeling that calling out that you are so known for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.